So last week we took a look at one of the most important theological points inside of the book of Genesis, and that can be found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and it's called the Proto-Evangelium. And basically what the Proto-Evangelium is, is the first prophecy regarding a Savior that will one day liberate mankind from the curse of sin and death. Of course, we know that this Savior would be Jesus Christ. But all prophecies, uh, at least most prophecies, have both an immediate application and a distant application. So last week we looked at the distant application of the Proto-Evangelium. So now we're going to be taking a look at the immediate application of this prophecy. So the immediate application to the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 was actually tragic. So last week you had the hopeful, this week you're hearing about the tragic. And in his poem, In Memoriam, Alfred Tennyson popularized the phrase, Nature Red in Tooth and Claw. Now, in his poem, Tennyson was coping with the loss of a very dear friend of his and wrestling with the ideas of a loving God in contrast to the brutality of the world. Just a few short years after uh, Tennyson's words became famous, uh, another famous person wrote a book by the name of Charles Darwin, and he popularized the theory of evolution at that time through his work, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. And Darwin's book affirmed the idea that the brutal order that we see in nature was indeed what makes the world go round. People struggle with the ideas uh, like the brutality in nature or the plight of human existence. We wonder why bad things happen to good people. And some people devote their entire lives to trying to solve this mystery while others try to cope with it in their own ways. The perceived contradiction between an all-powerful and loving God in contrast to a cruel world is an outright lie. The Bible undergirds the affirmation of God's love with an explanation of nature red in tooth and claw. And it is found in verses 14 and 15 of Genesis chapter 3. You see, up to this point, we have seen a world that was upheld by God's love and found in his favor. Everything was more than good. In fact, it says in the Bible that it was very good. Well, sin entered the world and a curse was pronounced on all of creation. As he spoke to the serpent, I want you to pay close attention to the words that God used. He said, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. I would argue that these phrases I put the emphasis on, distinguish the creation account from a mere myth. You see, a myth would have left it at that the serpent lost its legs and that's why it crawled on, why it crawls on its belly, because it tempted the people to sin. Well, that's not what we see in this curse that God pronounced upon the serpent. As it, he said that, cursed are you above all livestock, and all wild animals. So in other words, every animal is affected 
by the curse of sin. I remember I had a teacher who was either first or second grade, and she said that God created bees. Satan created a stinger. Now, is that true? Of course it's not true. In fact, God created both the bee and the stinger, but it's because of the curse that bees sting. Lions, they're powerful animals, incredible creatures, and they tear their prey apart brutally. Even though we know them for doing this, is that how God created them? Well, no. That habit was created through the curse of sin. Or wolves. I find wolves very fascinating because they hunt in packs. And they always come to my mind when I hear this phrase, nature red and tooth and claw. And it's remarkable how they hunt together and how they find their meals together and feed together. But as amazing as what that is, was that God, part of God's original plan? The answer is no. That too is part of the curse. Genesis presents the serpent as a representative of the animal kingdom. And because of what the serpent did, all other animals are affected by the curse of sin. This is exactly what God is saving the world from. In the end, God restores nature to its original good state. In fact, I would say instead of a good state or a very good state, it will be a very, very good state. Nonetheless, he will allow one vestige of the curse to remain. And you can see that in Isaiah chapter 65, 65 verse 25. It reads, The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw, like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, did you catch that? The serpent will continue to eat dirt on the ground. It will always be a creature that slithers. It will be an everlasting reminder of God's faithfulness to humanity. Now, it's thought by many Bible scholars that the serpent in Genesis 3 must have had legs of some sort. It might have perched in trees, or in some way it was different from the snakes that we see today. Now, in ancient times, the removal of one's hands and head was a symbol of absolute defeat. For instance, when the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines, it was placed in a room with their idols, uh, Dagon particularly, and uh, one morning... When they went to check up on the Ark of the Covenant and their idol Dagon, they saw Dagon laying on the ground with its hands and head removed from its body. So it was a sign that in the presence of God Almighty, Dagon was defeated. Well, we see in the story of the serpent that the serpent was uh, destined to crawl on the ground, eating the dirt, so to speak, so losing its limbs, which is partially a sign of its defeat, but then also, we see that one day, inside of verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, that something else would happen. That one day, the offspring of the man would crush the serpent's head. So, this is imagery about Satan's defeat right here. 
um, not particularly the literal serpent, but actually of Satan's defeat. In fact, God's plan is to reconcile creation to himself as well. And we see this uh, alluded to in Romans 8.21 that says, Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Animals will be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God, and that is humanity. Well, prior to the future glory, God has extended grace even to the snakes. Perhaps the most famous of all verses in the Bible is undergirded by the imagery of serpents. Jesus explained his mission to the world to Nicodemus in John 3, 14 through 15, using imagery of snakes. He said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have life in him. Now, what is this whole, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness jargon? Well, back in the days of Moses, the Israelites had grown impatient with God and started speaking against him and complaining to Moses, saying that we were better off in Egypt. So God sent venomous snakes to terrorize the camp of Israel. Many of them were bitten and they started dying because of this. But Moses prayed to God, repenting for Israel's sins. And in Numbers 21, 8-9, we see God's remedy. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So even though snakes are typically used to represent Satan, in this instance, they were used to represent the cross. The Son of Man would be lifted up on a cross, just as the bronze serpent was lifted up on a pole, so that anyone who looked upon him would not die, but be saved. The deception that the serpent brought upon humanity would be used by God for a greater purpose than what could be seen at the moment. Through our sin, we are able to experience the depths of God's love. Yes, God loves us when we're all well and good and prosperous. But did you know that God still loves you even when you fail? That when you hit rock bottom, God's love never wavers. It just goes deeper. It reminds me of a little story I heard a few years ago. I believe it was by the Brothers Grimm. And it was about a young prince who was courting princesses. Now, this prince was spoiled, obnoxious, critical, arrogant. Uh, with every princess that was presented to him, he met them with mockery and criticism. One day, a particularly beautiful and wise princess was presented to him, and he still found a multitude of ways to demean and humiliate her. And he was sentenced to back-breaking labor the rest of his days, where his appearance became marred as a result of hard work. After a number of years, the young prince learned the value of hard work and became humbled. It was then revealed that the beautiful and wise princess was actually behind the prince's sentence. 
Knowing that he would never be able to find good in any princess, she hatched a plot to humble him and then take the prince as her husband. When the young prince became a decent, hardworking, and respectable person, she removed the chains of slavery, and they were married. It's a strange story, but it is, but is it that dissimilar from what God is doing with us? But God's plan, I contest, is even more amazing because he doesn't want to wait until we are perfect to claim us. God's calling us now. He endures all of our perfect, all of our arrogance, all of our cynicism, all of our judgmentalism, and all of our imperfections. Ultimately, he brings us to a place where we appreciate him more because we come to realize that he could have abandoned us. He could have abandoned all of creation. God's love persists even amid nature's cruelty. Through the deep darkness cast by the world's condition, God's love shines all the brighter as a star in the middle of a black night sky. Now next week, we look at the curse as it related we look at the curse as it relates to the human to the humans in the story. After all is said, you will see that our God is not one who delights in punishing the wicked, but is long suffering and desiring none to perish. I'd like to thank you for joining us for today's sermon. My name is Bill Sang from Faith Presbyterian Church. Please feel free to join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30 in the morning. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.